hello and welcome to the Cognitive Engineering Podcast produced by Tell Me Studios for Aleph Insights. In this series of podcasts, we take a look at interesting topics and discuss what we think they tell us about analysis and decision making. I'm Fraser McGrewer and I'm here with Nick Hare and Peter Coghill of Aleph Insights. And this week we have a special guest with us um, who is Martin O'Reader of Ravelin. And we're discussing machine learning and fraud detection. So Martin, um, if you can start us off and tell us about um, Ravelin, what they do, and then also tell us about what you do at Ravelin. Yeah, by all means, yeah. Um, so Ravelin is a is a fraud detection startup, I guess it's fair to say, based in London. Um, I think part of the the part of it, I should be clear, is that I, I'm one of the founders, and I started with two other people, or three other people, in fact, with, with whom I worked at a, at another London startup. Um, called Halo, which was a, a taxi uh, hailing app in the manner of Uber. And uh, we, I was the head of fraud there and uh, discovered that, you know, like a lot of on-demand companies, it had a fraud problem. Uh, you know, it's very common. Any company that takes credit cards, any app, any service that takes credit cards, it, it, it's not very well known, but they tend to have these extensive fraud problems because people either want the service or they're able to resell it in some way. So there's a huge market um of cards out there out there and people will just get them and, and use them against these companies and the interesting thing is that the company themselves are the people who end up paying for it so what does that mean it does mean that the consumer consumers are very well protected by consumer protection legislation and for other various reasons um but if you are the victim of credit card fraud you can ring up the bank the bank will refund you uh but through the process known as a chargeback, it, the company with whom that money was spent by the fraudster is on the hook. Mm. So, so that was the kind of problem we had at Halo was the head of fraud, and they had this a significant fraud problem. And and what was your background? How how is it how is it that you became an expert in fraud and specifically in I guess in the technology of fraud? Um, I, I was an intelligence analyst before that. I, I was a, I mean a crime analyst effectively. I, I didn't have any particular expertise in fraud, but I'd be become used to kind of trying to automate some processes, uh, you know, in the police, um, particularly around uh, detection and statistical modeling, statistically, statistical prediction of, of when and where certain crimes might happen. And it turned out with fraud, because there was such a richness of data, that it was, it was relatively easy to, to model um, certain characteristics of the fraudsters. And it was, it was, that was the basis that I started in Halo on. Okay, rather than myself asking a question, I think either Peter or Nick should ask a question. Well, yeah, I was just wondering about, so when you talk about these cards, you mean like a credit card that doesn't belong to someone or is it a totally made up credit card? Or how, I suppose what's the process whereby someone is able to commit fraud? Right. Um, yeah, I, I wasn't clear on that. Uh, so um, cards... People's credit cards are, are valuable commodity because you can use them to spend money. And this is completely intuitive understanding there. Credit cards are valuable. There's inherent value to them. And you can use them to spend money on anything. So there's always been a market in trying to get other people's cards onto, onto taking other people's cards and use them for yourself. And that, that happens in, in the most mundane, obvious ways. Uh, you can just look over someone's shoulder and get them. Um, and various technical countermeasures were put in place to stop this kind of thing, such as the, the chip and pin that we've had in Europe for the last, what, 10 or 15 years. Um, 
but cards can get introduced to the uh, cards can be stolen in the, in that simple way and sometimes they're also taken from major breaches um particularly prevalent when large techno technology companies store people's credit cards in an insecure way and then the next thing you know target in the us is because 100 million cards are on the on the market so so and, they're all real cards right so i suppose the question is how can you tell that you're dealing with a fraudulent payment um so the well this is this is to talk this is interesting so to talk about the genesis of kind of this credit card fraud detection it 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 had the same kind of basis in automation that a lot of things do so the first instinct uh to try and automatically detect uh fraud is to just look at it eyeball the data you know back in the 90s when people first started selling things in the internet people would st started seeing that they were getting chargebacks and they thought well i'll just take a look at the ones that i'm getting chargebacks on and they see that maybe they're all associated with the same address one fraudster has got hold of a bunch of cards uh, and is just using them to make purchases so we've linked it to an address and okay i'm going to blacklist that address so to automate that you just create like an expert system a rule engine uh, and uh, and this is a really really common way to th th that you can initiate the the kind of automation of credit card fraud detection and it's still in place it's still use it's still useful loads of companies still do it um but you know like any expert system and rules engine it it is a bit of a blunt instrument um it definitely has consequences in terms of false positives because any one of us uh, could be the victim uh, or not the victim but the, the victim of a, of a rule engine by just having a typical behavior so for example I lived in Kosovo for a year and tried to make a purchase on eBay but this this confounded all future purchases on eBay for the following 10 years <laughs> I was never able to convince them that I wasn't a Balkan fraudster I and that was I... simply because I had been put on some blacklist has used card in 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 Kosovo. Yeah, I was in uh, Las Vegas a few years ago and uh, Bar and my card stopped working and Barclays phoned me up and said, I'm afraid we think someone's using your card in Las Vegas. <laughs> and I had to admit it was me. <laughs> <laughs> you missed a great opportunity there to say, oh, that's uh, surprising. I've never been anywhere near yeah. Las Vegas. That's a good tip right there. That's from, yeah. from a professional. Yeah. That is kind of fraud, though. That is definitely sort of fraud. What we're yeah. about Ravlin does not endorse uh, yeah. commission yeah. of fraud. So, Peter, would you have, got, have you got a question? Yeah, so... so so presumably these the, the, the these rule these rule engines are old hat and these are being replaced now by more intelligent systems. Yeah, that that's right. And that was the basis that we uh that, that we started raveling on. Um so it's all all very well if you're an old fashioned uh or uh e commerce company where you've got some time to interdict the the sending of something from a warehouse or you can go down and physically stop the goods from being sent but in an on-demand space you don't really have time and you might be getting hundreds and hundreds of orders a second so rule engines typically will put things into three categories one is let let the order happen the another one is stop the order we don't want to have anything to do with it and the third category which is the uncertain the category of uncertainty is let a human review it so machine learning is a really good way to narrow that review category to uh to to narrow it so that you can have less human involvement than you would there's no need to have just a huge team of reviewers and that the human involvement effectively becomes confirmation rather than full investigation on every single order it also just lets you i mean giving it the huge corpus of data lets you uh re just reduce the number that you might have in that middle category 
Okay, Peter. And and presumably, um, if you automate the process of deciding whether or not it needs review, you, you, you potentially you can then repurpose these analysts to conduct more intelligent, broader strategic investigation to look for bigger patterns. And Pre things. Precisely, yeah. So it's humans are good at, at things that humans are good at, which is the, <laughs> <laughs> machine learning is also it's good. Very profound, Mark. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but it's it's a it's a waste of time to have intelligent agents. Um, mindlessly reviewing things that you could that you know you could derive statistically and that that's the kind of ultimate purpose of machine learning if, if there's a statistical basis for it machine learning is going to be better at it so what does what is it uh, what data does it look at i suppose what's the information that it uses when it's making a judgment as to whether to pass fail or review well, that's a that's another interesting question because with the rule engine you might have 300 or so or but often far far fewer rules um that try to prescriptively determine what you think behavior might be but with machine learning there's no prescription at all the characteristics or features as we call them are, are just all derived from the characteristics of the individual the order the card the email anything and everything associated that you might get as a bit of information so things things that seem non-intuitive the ratio of consonants to vowels in an email address uh, the amount of time that someone spends on a site whether they go straight for the high value stuff all of these you know some of them can be encapsulated with rules but then you need to make a judgment about what weighting you should give that and what score you should have and we don't take that we just say right we think it might be relevant we're not certain the machine will tell us by giving it a corpus of examples and labeling them as either fraudsters or genuines the machine's able to pick out and say well these are the characteristics that were important to 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 a fraudulent order or a fraudulent and, and, pres and presumably because you're letting the machine just decide what it statistically reckons is, Im is important in these factors there may be no obvious logical reason why the proportion of vowels in an email address yeah gives you a higher proportion a higher chance of fraud exactly and that leads to another really interesting problem with machine learning this is one of its great disadvantages is that there's a uh, there's a diminished explicability yeah. uh, compared to a rule engine. If rule engine triggers, a rule triggers, you get a rule. You, you know why it's triggered and and yeah. it's it's a it's a yes or no, it's a binary gate. With with machine learning, particularly on certain types of algorithms, neural nets in particular, very hard to to interpret the output. You know what the sorry, you know what the outcome is, but you're not sure how it derived that. So it'd be it'd be interesting. So you can imagine interesting court test cases where, yeah. oh, I tried to buy this thing, and as a result, I uh, suffered injury. I'm going to sue you. Um, taking really difficult to unpick the, the the audit trail of why that that purchase was was denied. Yeah. Um, in court for humans to understand. Completely, and and, and it, in fact, it's always been a challenge for Ravelin, uh, as people selling uh, kind of machine learning technology, uh, to to effectively sell this kind of lack of understanding uh, compared to what they had before to the extent that we explicitly favor algorithms that have some amount of explicability over ones that maybe have a slightly better performance but but have no explicability because we've it's we found that in this kind of great move to machine learning automation people still still really want explicability whether or not it helps them and I think that that's what it that, that tells us something very interesting about 
uh, an ideal about how humans reason, which is different from an idealized way of reasoning, which is that we tend to think in terms of processes and systems and cause and effect. And, you know, if something happens, we, we don't really feel like we understand or uh, can use that, the, the connection between that thing and some other thing until we've found what the causal link is. You know, people, it took a long time when the when statistics showed that there was a connection between smoking and lung cancer. You know, people didn't really feel like they, they quite believed it until they understood what the mechanism was. But presumably, your algorithm, like a lot of other algorithms, just don't care. I mean, the fact is, these things are connected. So, so one bit of data explains another piece of data statistically, and that's enough to say... Uh, to inform a decision uh, absolutely in as much as a machine does or doesn't care about anything <laughs> uh, <laughs> they absolutely don't care about the the, the means by which it you know reaches a conclusion but people really really do um and, and for that reason you know we, we have to acknowledge that so I, I think I, as you know as time goes by people will be more and more comfortable perhaps i mean that's a thesis that people will get more comfortable with you know handing over more responsibility to algorithms i for example i don't need to know how a car works as far as i'm concerned it's magic but <laughs> but when people first got into them i i you know i imagine that they were very very concerned with the the mechanism and means by which it propelled checking under the bonnet for checking the under the bonnet yeah for yeah little so people. in in i mean so and I guess it actually has another advantage, which I hadn't really thought about, which is that it actually makes it harder to game. It's harder to play against something if you don't know what it's looking for. So, you know, it's, it's, uh, if you, if you realise that it's something to do with addresses, then, you know, you'll look for ways to fake your address. But if, it's, if you don't really know how it's working, it's harder to do that. Um, well, I think something that Peter and I were wondering about was, could you imagine someone developing um, an artificial intelligence that would be designed to break Ravelin's system uh, i can 100 percent anticipate that uh, i i don't think it's it's terribly likely because i think fraudsters it's not likely in the near term it's it's it the pr probability approach is one in the in the <laughs> long term because you know there will always be countermeasures and fraud is a lucrative career with little enforcement uh, um and and almost no consequences so it's a lucrative thing for people to do but it's one of the great advantages of machine learning over a rule system or an expert system fraudsters will find those edges you know, a prescriptive edge a fraudster will find and, and, and find an exploit, either by just, you know, waiting enough time or by changing the address or doing some simple countermeasures. Okay. I just um, want to take it in a slightly different direction to talk about, because um, we've talked a little bit about, for example, one of the problem, one of, an issue is if there's no explanation that humans um, don't like that there's no explanation. But flipping that around a little bit, what um what are the human inputs what do they still have to be the input the inputs into the detection um and what could you foresee that would never change um so th there there's we're nowhere near a point where you can have no human interaction yet not not in fraud detection um and not not in the kind of space that we're currently in um if the most important thing we have at the moment is feedback for whether we got the decision right or wrong it doesn't have to be on every single decision but it has to be on a, a decent representative sample um, so every decision that Ravelin makes, we like to get a, not everyone, but we'd like to get as many as we can a confirmation of whether we were correct or incorrect, um, because it, it ceases to be accuracy metrics um, are are interesting in machine learning because you could say you know if we let every single person through, we would still be ninety nine percent accurate in most cases. You know, it just that that one percent is is uh, you know 
causes a lot of trouble for 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 our clients. And if you didn't let anyone through, you you'd stop all fraud. We would also have stopped one hundred percent of fraud. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you but know. so sorry, I'm still missing. So what is it the humans still need to do? So um, review. Uh, it's still it's still a thing. The people who have been uh, analysts before still have to review, but this this time it tends to be saying we were right or we were wrong. The this the, the, the decision the machine made was correct or incorrect, and and the ones that it's incorrect on we package up and say we we look at those to uh, and reincorporate those into the learning. Said right, these are these these ones weren't as fraudy as we thought. The ones that we were wrong on are. Th- well, right and wrong can mean you either said it was a fraudster and it wasn't, which is a false positive, or you said it wasn't a fraudster and it was a false negative. Um, so those go automatically into the learning um, and retraining feedback cycle. Um, and it's really important for the uh, analysts to, to feed those, to give, that, give us that feedback so that, so that we have better examples, ever better examples to train on. You also had to decide, you had to make some judgment about what information you needed to gather and to give to the machine. Exactly. And and because presumably there's a whole, there's also tons of information which you could be using, but which you just judged to be irrelevant. So, you know, I'm only guessing, but you would imagine the, um, I would guess things like the time of day might be important. Yeah. You probably, you you might imagine saying, well, the, the number of seconds that have elapsed since the end of the previous minute isn't, or, you know, the, which maybe, maybe postcode is important or, you know, but, but some things you might decide weren't. Um, so is that something that's becoming less and less of a problem because there's fewer constraints you can just give as much as you possibly can to the algorithm and it all... you can give as much as as you possibly can but it but it's still a real need for a, a person who understands deeply um what what the problem space contains or what the that industry the kind of features that are important intuitively in that industry because otherwise we might just miss really obvious things. We can say that like we, we might be collecting 400, 500 features on any given order, but not one of them might be the most important one. So there is definitely scope for that kind of human expertise, top level human expertise. The person who once would have written the rules is now saying these things are important, but not being as prescriptive about the way that they're important mm. and, and what weight. We can offset that to a process that's better at doing it than, than, than you are or that one is um but but we still need that feedback because he might say or she you know would often say that something that we hadn't thought of at all is really important yeah and and so i suppose in future you can imagine this sort of thing just being the the norm for a lot of um industries so for example peter and i come from a defense background you come from a crime background um you can imagine an intelligence analyst who's looking for uh warning signals of say a nuclear test or something um not uh, needing to actually interpret those signals themselves, but saying, okay, these are the kinds of things we might look at and the machines will do the rest. They'll, they'll say, okay, well, actually, we've looked at all of the past data and we think there's a you know, probability of 11% of a test in the next week. Um, but the human will still be needed to, to point it in the right direction, to, to, give it, to decide which data streams to look at. I, I completely think so. It wouldn't be any good trying to use our machine, our trained machines to predict the probability of a nuclear test because the features would be totally... Uh, ridiculous. But and... would the would the architecture work? I mean, I mean, can you just plumb in? Couldn't you just plumb in different data? Completely streams? separate set of features. Um, I I think it probably depends on the algorithms you're using. It, it, you know, um, 
and it probably depends what you want the output to be, whether you want it to be, you know, a prediction or a classification or whatever. I think it probably depends more on that. You can certainly, you know, the techniques are, are generalizable, you know, that's, but I don't think, uh, you know, our, our uh, software would work particularly it'd be, well. It'd be the, but the, the underlying algorithms, the statatistical me machine learning methods are probably all the gen the same generic ones that are repurposed I, I'm, elsewhere. I'm, I'm certain of it, yeah. I mean, because my, my thought is, whatever your analysts are doing when they're saying, you know, is this correct or not, they must be using some sort of information. So in principle, you could, you know, then just take the information they're using to make that human judgment and plug that in. And I, and I, I wonder if we're just not being a bit too generous to, to humans here. Uh, and if, in fact, you, you know, we, actually one day we really won't need humans to make judgments about things. So in, in the case of this kind of payment industry, there are other mechanisms for feedback, um, you know, uh, and to some extent, humans appear to be divorced from them. So merchants might get something called a chargeback file from their acquirer, which is a bank for merchants. Um, uh, and that has a list of, uh, that has a very good list of these chargebacks that are a very high probability that they're these originated with fraudulent accounts. And you could use that to train instead of having any human reviews. And in fact, some of our clients do that because they don't have humans involved in the process. But behind the scenes, you know, every chargeback starts with a person ringing their bank and that person is someone, human involvement somewhere mm. further down the line. Um, now, of course, I can anticipate a, a, a different system where there's just no human involvement in it at all. And, and the, the feedback in a, in a particularly pure system where the feedback is constantly coming in and reinforcing it, a really good application for machine learning, that would be. Um, but to the extent that you have to we're in the real world and yeah. that you know we need quality feedback so at some point someone's got to say this was a fraud someone has to say yeah, this was so a, fraud. a real life thing has to happen so what is it about what are the features of fraud detection that make it easy to automate that make it vulnerable to automation with machine learning um so a couple of things um uh, uh you know the fact that fraudsters are to some extent predictable that fraudulent behavior is some extent predictable. There's also been, you know, 10 years, 12 years of people training themselves to be decent fraud reviewing analysts. And machine learning is very good at things that people are good at in bulk. So we've got a huge corpus of a body of work that's already been done where we have people trained who are ready to train the machines without really much interruption to their daily lives. So there's little, with little change in their process, they can change, they can train a machine to do it for you. Um, if you know, unspoken part of this is that they're training themselves out of jobs in some cases, but humans should do what humans are good at. Presumably, the pre the, the availability of data, which includes that training set that you're talking about, but also this, the live stream of data. Yeah. So people are. Yeah. I mean, more purchases are being done on the internet, either through apps, services, web. I mean, the UK in particular is you know, heavily, heavily. Um, uh, by by far the 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 most uh, comfortable country with doing internet purchasing, um, so the just the the volume and richness of data is is on a kind of a curve upwards. Yeah, not sure it's it's linear. It might be. Well, might, yeah. So so, so 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 using that as a sort of uh, understanding model for what other industries might be uh, vulnerable to machine learning. What what sort of what immediately stands out, or what other areas are aware of that well, using you this? Not training to be. Uh, I, I think I think so. I mean, um, a lot of financial 
the financial sector is is possibly in danger. Compliance in particular, which is just just kind of rules. Um, uh, insider trading. These are all ones that seem to me to be uh, very vulnerable to um, the similar types of techniques where you have rules of people looking at trades, you know. Um, then I mean, we talk about other things that are, you know, heavily process led. I mean, this isn't necessarily machine learning, but, you know, certain types of, you know, uh, bookkeeping, accountancy, I think they're really, I think really the one we always we always seem to come back to is estate agents. Oh, I think I think we, <laughs> who doesn't we, want we, them all... to be replaced <laughs> by, by a machine, <laughs> yeah. an unthinking, hard nosed automaton. Self interest. Uh, well, that's automaton, estate yeah. agents, but what that's about the machine? That's my point. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I think there's, I mean, I think there, there's there's uh, people applying machine learning to other sort of predictable, uh, predictable industries. So, for example, manufacture. If you're if you if you're a production line, there's very lots of data available there, lots of things you can measure. Yeah. Um, you can apply machine learning to and to to monitoring when things are when when your systems are about to fail because there may be yeah. maybe predictable cues yeah. that tell you when things are when need parts need replacing, tolerances are starting going out, um, there's start noises are appearing at the wheels. So you 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 can apply it to anything that's got lots of data like that. Yeah, that's monitoring I think maybe is the kind of the meta characteristic of a lot of these things that would be that are particularly you know vulnerable i mean I, that, monitoring is certainly the function of the um fraud reviewers as as it is for uh, compliance and uh you know, trade reviewers in the in the city so there's definitely that monitoring that that monitoring i guess is the i call it the meta uh characteristic of yeah. these industries um I, I, th I think we need to wrap up there. Um, and um, the, but this it's nothing to do with machine learning. But um, there's two questions I want to ask. Yeah. Um, go ahead. But first of all, is what, do you have any personal feelings towards fraudsters? Uh, that's the first question. Second, I would have thought and related to that that you're fantastically placed to to commit to be a fraudster yourself, aren't you? And are you have you? <laughs> Have you ever it's been a, tempted? Yeah, well, no. well, not have you ever been tempted, but more or less you would, yeah, someone with your set of skills and experience, you, you, you'd be perfect for this, I would have thought. But anyway, so what are your personal feelings towards fraudsters? Um, I, I really have a, quite a deep dislike of fraudsters, um, Good, I, although they pay my bills. Um, it's, it's, I mean, that kind of slightly... Fairly indirectly. Yeah, indirectly, but they, um, you know, the fact that fraudsters exist, uh, you know, is, is the kind of bread and butter of my company. Um but uh, I, I have a moral, quite a, a moral contempt for them. Well, it's 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 not just moral; it's the idleness of them. You know, the predictability, idleness, and stupidity. Is it the having... fact that you can make an Excel spreadsheet trap them? You know, and I mean. <laughs> okay, so what makes a good fraudster and what makes a bad fraudster? A really good fraudster is is the unpredictable fraudster, and the ones you know, the ones that I I, I can see if. Um, you know, gone out of their way, probably automated the process themselves. The Wolf of Wall Street kind of fraud. Uh, yeah, you know, I haven't seen it, uh, but mm. but yeah, they they're well, super high level fraudsters. Uh, so people, some people put an awful lot of effort into very very low level payment card fraud, 
and I do not understand it. Eventually, you just think, why don't you go and get a job and earn money? And spend, <laughs> yeah. like, it actually becomes easier just to not be a fraudster, yeah. but to actually just have some money on a credit maybe, card. Maybe there's another podcast uh, in that. Maybe there's the, the economics of fraud and when it becomes more costly to conduct fraud than it does yeah. to... Yeah. Yeah. It's a bit like, I mean, we've done a previous podcast episode about signalling, and you know, at some point, in order to make the signal really convincing, you just the easiest way is just to be that thing. Yeah. You yeah. Know? yeah. yeah. And so, so and, and then I presume then, so that my second question... If you would be a good fraudster, presumably you would be a very good one. Um, I, I if you were so would inclined. not be because although I constantly bemoan the fact that there is no enforcement uh, uh, of you know in in this kind of payment fraud space, or little or no enforcement. I mean, there's there's some, um, and that the consequences, even if you are caught, are are pretty minimal. So you know, all the incentives are there. Um, I would still be way too scared to do it <laughs> okay. uh, because <laughs> um, I because Ravelin is so good and you'll yeah, I, well that that aside Ravelin doesn't prosecute just uh, <laughs> it would really just tell you to not take the order or to block the customer um, so the, the, you know the consequences are limited but I still would never do it I'm but too scared a, to commit a crime but in a technical sense you would be well placed. In a technical sense, you might even argue that uh, Ravelin's incentives are aligned with the proliferation <laughs> of fraud. <laughs> um, but, uh, of course... So there's no dark underground department of Ravelin which is actually conducting loads of low-level fraud. Yeah. No, there isn't. No, no. Okay. I categorically state there, there is we not. Go. And you can I... you neither confirm or deny any accusations. Of it <laughs> fraud is a crime. Okay, look. don't do it, kids. Don't do, don't do fraud or drugs. Yeah. Let's wrap it up there. So, um, as always, thank you to Nick Hare and Peter Coggill of Aleph Insights um, for joining us on the Cognitive Engineering Podcast. But an extra special thanks to Martin O'Reader uh, of Ravelin for joining us and providing us with his an insight into his expertise into what you do at Ravelin and and into machine learning and fraud detection. So, thank you very much, Martin. I really enjoyed that. Thanks, everyone, and uh, until next time. <laughs>